Hello, world. Hey. Hi. 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 Hello. Hello. Hi. It's like I forgot not to say hello. <laughs> hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Life with Kaka, the show where we chat with producers from all walks of life to learn about their journeys, to take a deep dive into their careers, and to dig into the messy parts of life, the Kaka. I'm your host and producer, Carolina Gropa. This week on the show, we hear from Alana Mayo. She was an executive at Paramount Pictures for many years before becoming head of development and production at Michael B. Jordan's production company, Outlier Society. Real talk, she's been on my radar for quite some time, and when this interview was recorded back in January, it was honestly the highlight of my week. Aside from her being a total boss in the field, you just kind of want to kick it back with her and have drinks at the Sunset Tower. Oh, we were both getting over some sort of weird cold when this was recorded, but don't worry, we're not contagious. (laughs) She had so much goodness to share, and so I just had to cut this down into two parts. So, part one, we're going to tackle how to be authentic in the age of social media, how to not derive your self-worth from your professional identity, and how she differs from her fiancé, the trailblazing Lena Waithe. Alana's path could not have been more different from mine, and our talk reminded me how each person's journey in this life, especially in entertainment, is so unique. You just never know how the stars are going to align. It reminded me of how I started producing in the first place, which was by just jumping in the deep end of the pool, doggy paddling to the edge every time, and coming up gasping for air, wondering what just happened and how did I get through it? I really adore this woman, and I can't wait to hear what you think and take away from part one of our talk. Here is Alana. I find that, like, you know, when I listen to podcasts, that that people tend to gloss over the hard times or the mm. difficult mm-hmm. stuff, mm-hmm. and I that's kind of why I started a podcast. Oftentimes, there is this, especially with social media, this sort of myopic view and perception of what we do of what the industry is actually like Mm -hmm. what the lifestyle is like of somebody who is in this Mm -hmm. business that isn't a celebrity and I my hope is that I can demystify that a little bit and pull back the curtain and give a voice to the people that rarely are heard from yeah it's weird like this is this is just a job is what I always say it's like it's just a job like any other career and profession that you can have it's just um a very public job that involves sometimes going to parties or being photographed for magazines or walking red carpets, but it it really is just a job. And I, I would like for more people to think of it as, you know, a real potential career in the same way that you can think about being a dentist or a doctor or a professor or whatever, you know, you might think of because it's just a job. It is. But that phenomenon of like, the, the media and the attention and the sort of publicity that goes along with what we do is fascinating that that has to go hand in hand with yeah, the work, it's, you it's, know? It is fascinating. It, it makes sense from a, you know, yeah. just a practical standpoint of how do you publicize or market mm-hmm. things. Um, but it is culturally very interesting to me how much of this profession is tied to and related to PR uh, for for good and for bad you know Um, and and some of that funnily enough is I think more for the purposes of internal 
industry leverage and power than it even is for connecting to an audience because there are plenty of people that we're aware of that we think are, you know, hot or important or, you know, sexy for whatever reasons because they've had really great internal Hollywood PR that I think the audience doesn't really know about or recognize, you know, but it's so ingrained in, it's so ingrained in what, how this industry functions and, and, you know, uh, uh, how you're able to just get things accomplished. Uh, so I think having a healthy relationship to it is important and understanding that you have to do it. Like I rejected the notion of having to do any sort of, or having to have a presence, a presence. Yeah. Yeah. I just, it's kind of counterintuitive to just who I am as a person. I, I like things to happen really organically and I don't like the notion of, projecting something into the world intentionally to try to get a result but once I realized that you have to do that um (laughs) you know you find your I think I would like to think I found my own version of it uh but it's it's really it's really challenging whether you're a person who is comfortable with it or not to find I think the right balance of an authentic portrayal of who you are and understanding that this is just kind of a functional part of doing this job yeah I mean it's there's always that point when authenticity becomes you know sponsored hashtag ad and then it's like at what point is that considering selling out and I think you know Lena Waithe who's your fiance yeah I think she's done an incredible job of I've been following her since she was Hillman grad since before she she changed she she changed her her handle handle on Instagram (laughs) um but you know just to see how she has taken the power that she's been given and really made her voice her own I think that is when used at its best it's that's how it looks I also have a love-hate relationship with it then it becomes a full-time job of like, what should I be thinking to say that is authentic and true to my voice? It's just exhausting. And then I don't want to do any of it. You know, I don't envy you that at all. Uh, Thanks. Because (laughs) um, I think it's impossible to be organic and have to kind of prescribe and plan things like that. I do think it's possible to be authentic though. And still understand that your authenticity has to, you know, be translated through this kind of, manufactured product like you think about just brands and brands that we love like coca-cola is always what it is right like super syrupy delicious carbonated drink but they understand that they have to figure out how to iterate on that message and and release it in the most effective way possible so whether that's in a bottle or a can and sold with this ad campaign or not i i'm somebody who's just all about progress so for Mm -hmm. all of the pitfalls of this kind of social media generation and people not being as focused on the work as they should because they're more focused on frankly the marketing of it hopefully what comes out of this is a bunch of brilliant marketers because we need those too but the positive of social media is it's the kind of democratization of content which has never existed the way that it does now there have always been you know these real big barriers to entry you know the fact that you can like do this podcast in the setting that we're doing it now with a laptop and a couple of microphones and I don't know what this guy does but whatever this little box is a little mixer a little mixer (laughs) so you have like a very lo-fi way of doing this and you are distributing this globally by putting it on the internet that's something that wasn't possible 10 years ago and so the voice that it's given to people 
who otherwise would not have one. The ability that it's given to people that are even within this industry yeah. and aren't, you know, the type of person or aren't specifically people that have held positions of power and haven't been able to advocate for their own mm -hmm. art or their own content. To me, that's so much doper than like the, you know, the kids that want to like post selfies all day. And yeah. I'm very curious what this generation like with the with the um kind of manifestation of an entire generation of young people growing up being able to project versions of themselves yeah. into the world and have like demand and audience through social media just from a like psychological sociological perspective i'm curious what that means 20 30 40 years from now yeah there are people that i think have chosen to take what is really just an incredible bit of technology and moment in our technological evolution and use it as a platform to say something that's meaningful to them, whatever that is. And I think that's really cool. If people and we can lean into that because it's definitely here to stay, you know, mm -hmm. and there's a whole nother level of it that we can't even foresee yet. That's like, if we knew then what we know now type of thing, I, I you know, I, I do hope this podcast reaches like that 19 year old girl, you know, who's kind of like, I don't know, but I think I want to do it. Yeah, um, I totally. I mean, I <laughs> totally, you know, I think it's cool to to have the intention of making something that can reveal a different side of a profession that people don't really understand or know about, you know, a, a huge, huge question we get. And I'm, I'm really kind of bad at social media. And so for me, Instagram, which is the only social media platform that I think I'm really on in any real way. Like for me, Instagram is to look at like puppy videos and like <laughs> people falling. Cause I find that to be funny. Um, but a lot of what, like if I do ever look at really Lena will be like, Oh, you know, I DM you something and I'll be like, Oh, I didn't see it. And I'll look and I'll have had all these DMS from people that I, I didn't answer. And I would say the vast majority of the ones that are people that I don't know are from people that are just like, Hey, is there, do you guys have interns at your company or Hey, you know, how does one get, involved in your company or how does one find their way to doing to, to doing what you want to do or you know the things that really you know warm my heart are like oh we want to do the thing that you were doing and mm. it's really helpful to hear about your journey and your path there because that was my I probably had a leg up over most people because my parents worked in the entertainment industry. Oh, what um, did they do? They were, my father uh, was a radio executive who both ran and owned radio stations um, throughout the country. And my mother worked in entertainment law. And so I knew that it was possible to have a career in entertainment. I just had been exposed to the music side of things, not mm. the film and television side but I, the great great fortune of going to college in New York and being able to intern while I was in college and being able to like afford to intern for free because most of them were unpaid and <laughs> I remember the moment where I was like I, I had started out being like oh maybe I'll be an actor and my mom was like no way too what well, exactly <laughs> she was like one don't do that and then she was like she literally said to me you know you're too bossy to take direction so I don't think that would ever work out for mm. you and then I was like maybe I'll be a director 
And I remember like trying to make a short film when I was in high school and my childhood friend Brandon had also made a short film. We were at film camp because I was that kind of a nerd. <laughs> and I was like, his short film is so good. And I was like, mine is so bad. <laughs> so I was like, I don't think that's it. And then when I was in college, I tried to do creative writing. And whenever we had to read our work aloud in like this workshop, everybody else's would be so good and mine would be so bad. And I was like, this is not like none of these things are the thing that, you know, I think I have a talent or a skill yeah. to do. And I remember interning for Lee Daniels and he both had a head of development and a producing partner. And I remember the moment where it clicked where I was like, oh, this is the thing. And then I yeah. looked back and I was like when I was a kid and I was like trying to be in plays, like the thing that I really enjoyed was the organizing of the play and the, what I would now say is producing of the play. And when, you know, I was in film camp and we would rotate jobs, I did not enjoy making shot lists. I didn't really enjoy working with actors. I didn't really want to like design a shot, think about a frame, think about a lens, like think about, you know, like freaking crossing the line. I did that all the time. <laughs> My characters were always talking to themselves. <laughs> and I never, like that was not of interest to me, but when I got to rotate into producing and producing somebody else's short, that was really cool. And then when I was in creative writing class, I hated reading my own work and I would procrastinate writing my own work, but I loved critiquing other people's stuff and saying yeah. like oh if you just move this one thing or maybe if you had this character think about this that would just you know make your work even better and so it really is the kind of thing that I don't think a lot of people are aware of mm -hmm. it being a completely legitimate profession and it's so rewarding if it's something you enjoy doing because you get to sit inside of the creative process in a really intimate way and help other people who are crazy talented like you help to facilitate their vision coming yeah. to life. And it's not the public face. I mean, if you're somebody like me, it's perfect because I don't want to be public facing. So it's not a public facing job. It's not a job you do for glory or for awards, but it's so deeply, deeply, deeply rewarding. So mm. I hope also that yes. that 19 year old girl listens to your podcast and also, you know, looks at this as a legitimate profession because it's a really cool one. Yeah, I think that's exactly, I think you nailed it. And I think a lot of people, everybody's path is so different in this business. But the good thing about producing is that it's as much of just being good with people as it is the practical stuff, I feel like you can learn, you know, like yes, 100%. how to bond a film, like how to apply for permits. Like these are, these are fairly practical things. And if you're a person who, you know, is good at like, figuring things out, I guess that would be the number one skill set of producing, then that stuff you can learn. Being able to have conversations, you know, you have to interact with as a producer mm -hmm. so many people and you have to manage the goals and the needs and the wants of so many people and then also whatever it is, the thing that you're producing, like the holistic vision yeah. of whatever that is. If you've meandered for five years and you've gotten some life experience and you've had difficult, you know, interactions with people and you've had failures that you've had to overcome and you've interacted with various different types of people and you understand that not everyone can be communicated with the same way. Like yes. that is as valuable, if not more so, because I feel like a lot of times that's what makes it particularly in film and particularly like the types of movies that I've worked on where you've had to both manage a studio and financier and then also like 
a person of note and success as, or I should say people of note and, mm-hmm. and success as, um, as, uh, filmmakers, like you gotta under, you have to have lived. It's like having a relationship, you yeah. know, but with like 50 different people. Exactly. And, and I think the more lived life experience you have, mm-hmm the easier it is to do that. Yeah. I also think from as someone who's come up as a line producer and more to the physical side, really knowing personality types and when you're crewing up, how those people are all going to get along. You know, not every DP should be working with that production designer. And sometimes you don't have a choice. Sometimes it's just you kind of make the best of it. But it's like, who are you going to put on this ship with you to go on this journey? And that, I think, is the, the finesse of getting the right crew together and creating that magic that I think you can create on set that in my opinion is 90% of what gets imprinted onto the film. It isn't just the actors, it's the crew, it's the energy behind the scenes. It's, it's everybody from the top down and the tone that they're setting for that set. So for me, when someone can walk on one of my sets and say that the energy here is so positive, like I've won for me that that is what I'm after because everything else is not in your control. You can have all of the best actors and all of the best intentions and the best script and it it just doesn't go the way you want it or tanks in the box office, whatever. So success in that sense shouldn't be like, yes, of course, make the best movie you can. And of course, everybody wants it to be visible and to find success, financial and other means. But can you create an experience that is going to be worth worthwhile for everybody? I always try to empower anybody because one, your title today doesn't define who you are and it doesn't define where you're going. It's just a stepping stone. You know, your PA today could be your boss tomorrow. Amen. And it's just about being a good person and communicating with people, empowering people, making them feel heard, making them feel understood in a a very high stress situation. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so it's a lot, but but, but that's the hard part of it. I couldn't agree with you more. And it's, it's, the thing that everybody's doing, whoever you are on set, is also fundamentally a creative thing. So to be, you think about the space that you need to be in to be creative in your regular life, however you're creative. Mm-hmm. It's much easier to do it when you feel comfortable and you don't feel like you have to worry about everyone and everything is relaxed and the the appearance is that things are, you know, going really well. Like all of, I had these great mentors when I was, um, when I worked as a studio executive and the way most film studios still do it is that the job that you have when you're trying to, you know, like where you're still learning, it's called a junior executive and you're partnered on every project with a senior executive. Mm-hmm. I remember talking about movies, you know, um, after the fact, like years after the fact that I worked on as a junior executive with the senior executive on the project. And I'd be like, oh yeah, so-and-so actor was like totally cool, was totally chill. And the senior executive would be like, no, he was a monster. Like we couldn't get him out of his trailer every day. And like, you know, he didn't know his lines and he wanted to quit in the set. And I remember thinking like, wow, how amazing that the people that worked on this movie were able to keep that Contained. keep it contained so that yeah. I had I worked on the movie and I had no idea yeah. that this stuff was going on and to me like that's really as you were saying that's like really the secret sauce of producing is being able to because you're always not only is is the results going to be out of your control in many ways but also you know you have hundred 
plus people working on a set mm-hmm. in any given moment in time. You can't micromanage every person. So there's going to be hiccups. Things are going to happen. People are going to be unhappy. People are going to have good days and bad days. But if you can just on the whole keep everything, like start everything so that it feels like we're starting on a good foundation and then keep everything more or less. Yeah on schedule more people happy than unhappy everyone feels taken care of like you know down to the little things i remember i had another mentor and friend who you know always like wouldn't work with this line producer again and i was like well why not like what was the issue thinking it was like oh my god when we over budget or there was you know receipts that were missing or something like really big (laughs) and she was like we were shooting in wherever Boston, I don't know, someplace really cold and he had no staging area for the extras. Mm. And so all of these extras were in this tent with no heaters and no whatever in the dead of winter in Boston or whatever it is. And I was just like, how could you not have accounted for that? And now this entire group of people is unhappy to be here. And me as the creative producer on the project have to now like, manage the fact that I have this scene that has a hundred extras in it and I have a hundred extras who are pissed off and who are cold and who want to leave and I was like oh my god it can be something that small and that minute that makes the world well I think it's like when you forget the humanity that it's like you want to treat a person who's chosen to be a background actor which is a shitty lifestyle Shitty it's a shitty gig job. to begin with, right? But people do they're essential to a part of the process, to a piece of the pie. So you forget the humanity of like these are 100 human beings who are working, and in no other field would that be yeah. acceptable. Yeah. The moment you forget that, to me, is when you're in trouble, and I, it doesn't I matter totally who anybody agree. is. So yeah. if you can infuse a little bit more love and compassion yeah. Yeah. into your sets and into how you deal with people. And it takes someone who can be really, I think, humble to put their needs aside. And that's why I like was so hungry to start this podcast because there's this misconception about what producers are actually like and how they're money hungry and then the first person to just make all the money and they don't care about anybody else and they're just keeping it all to themselves and it's like no those are usually the first people to cut their rates to make a movie or to make a project it it like you know it makes me really sad but of course there's shitty terrible people of course in in our industry yeah I mean I, I also think the the producer now and again, it depends on the thing and whatever. So I won't make a gross generalization, but the producer now is also different from what producers historically were. Mm. And like, you know, producers and studio executives used to be much closer, if not the same person, you know, like the golden age of Hollywood or yeah. whatever. Um, and then I think, you know, in the kind of boon of the 80s and 90s where the, everybody was making money hand over fist, the producer was getting, you know, multiple million dollar quotes and they were the celebrities in their own right and and they had ego and they had to be taken care of as much as... Like, the economics of film especially have changed and Lord knows non-writing producers on TV like that was never like a lucrative or sexy job necessarily I think it's a it's a great job for other reasons but it was never like the, the dream job, yeah you know? <laughs> um, and so 
So now, it, particularly now, if you're doing it, whatever you're doing it on, there's there's got to be some other deeper level of commitment and passion. And like, yeah, there are people that are producing quotes that are huge and, you know, they're getting rich off of things that they're making, too. But I find I feel like particularly now and this is, I think, true of anything in, in film and TV, again, because the economics have changed, like it's something that should be driven and the ones that I know that like really do it and are great at it it is driven by wanting to get things made Mm -hmm. if you're a person like me I just really get off on the idea of helping people that I think are creatively interesting or brilliant or worthy or smart or whatever it is like I really love the idea of helping those people make their things like that's a huge part of why I want to do it and I also really love working on things that otherwise I feel like wouldn't get made unless there were some sort of force like pushing it yeah right if you want to get things made because you want to make your four million dollar quote or if you want to get things made because you know you like seeing your animated logo in front of things (laughs) whatever the case may be like I won't judge people's motives or intentions but you have to be in this to like go through the slog of getting things made. And again, like when I was a film executive, nothing was easy to get greenlit. Like I don't think I took anything to greenlight that didn't require some sort of, you know, Herculean effort, whether it was in the deal making and who's going to cut their fees so that we can get this to budget. Or if it were, you know, like we can't cast this role and, you know, we've gone through all of our top picks and we're trying to figure out the availability of this person. Or when I was uh, at Paramount, I worked on um, as a junior executive, this movie Noah that Darren Aronofsky did. And there was literally a hurricane in New York in the middle of production (laughs) like it is not easy no it is not easy (laughs) and it's not like there's money you know kind of getting raining from the heavens for this effort so it's really hard to get something made and so you have to really have some sort of invested you know interest in doing it otherwise it's just not worth it so again there's shitty people everywhere and there's bad producers for a host of reasons but I think the idea that like any producer now is doing it because of the payday or mm. for the glory I just am like who is that person who's yeah getting that? I don't I know those people I don't know those that lifestyle so why do you do it for me it's just a belief in something like I was watching um I was watching Vice McKay's new movie, mm. and there's a scene where a young Dick Cheney asked um, Donald Rumsfeld, mm. asked Donald Rumsfeld, who's kind of like mentoring him in the uh, in Congress, and he's like, um, "Okay, I get like we're doing this, we're doing that, but like, what do we believe in?" And Rumsfeld, played by Steve Carell, just like starts hysterically laughing and like goes in the other room and he's like oh my god what do we believe in and I was it made the scene was one very funny and made me laugh and I was like I I feel like I would have the opposite reaction like I just have to believe in the thing that we're trying to get made and for me that belief comes from the people that are behind it you know if I can say I have like an innate ability in anything is I'm incredibly good at getting shit done mm. when I want to. Amen. <laughs> and so when I have a person or a story or an idea 
that I believe in and that I connect to. Like, I'm like, okay, I can do everything within my power to try to get this done. Yeah. I can't promise that it will because as you pointed out, like in this industry, you know, you can will things into existence to a certain level, but you're, you know, no one person has the power to like make anything happen consistently. But I'll do everything within my power to try to get it made and try to get it made well into success. And I, I, you know, what I've gotten back from working with and around the people that I've worked with, it just is so like selfishly, deeply, deeply rewarding to know that I was a part of getting that thing made. Yeah. Big or small, whatever it is, you know. And so for me, that's it's it's that simple. And I'm very fortunate that I've been able to almost exclusively work with people that I believe in or I believe in the thing that they're trying to do. And then other than that, I'm just like, I'm a story nerd. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm one of the, it's weird. Like I've, I've been a year now into, yeah, into working outlier. with mm-hmm. Michael B. Jordan at Outlier. And we get a lot of questions repeatedly. And one of which is, you know, would you guys develop? And I guess that's something that only gets asked of a talent based company. Cause Michael gets a lot of scripts that are ready to go or packages that are ready to go. And I was like a, of course we develop and not only of course we develop but to me that's the best part you know it's hard for me to work on things that I don't feel like I was inside of and helping shape and craft from early on I'm the kind of person who in addition to like wanting to help get the thing made like I want to help a part of shaping it and building it into the thing that will be made um and that part of it is just being you know an English major nerd who just really enjoys just that part loves of the process. It. I love it. Well, take me back a little bit to the beginning just because I know like we got really into it and it's uh-huh, been 35 minutes it. and there was like a 10 minute soapbox I got on <laughs> about social media. Uh, so take us back to the beginning a little bit just so you were an intern at Lee Daniels company. How did you get that internship? So I was pretty sure by the time I went to college in New York that I wanted to work in film at the time, just exclusively film, no TV. And so I set out like immediately to try to find internships and I worked for um, PBS. I worked for these producers on a documentary called Slavery and the Making of America, which was great because that was super production heavy, but also I never had any sort of access to unscripted and doc work. And, and so that was just really educational. So I did that for a little bit. And then I was just like applying for, I mean, if you needed somebody to PA on your student film, I was like, I'll do that. And, you know, any internship that I could find, I would apply for that. So I worked for Tribeca Film for a semester. Um, less so on the festival and more so on the movies that they were making. I worked in Jane Rosenthal's office. And then I got the opportunity to intern with Lee. I think I, I like cold applied for it. Um, <laughs> and, that. Uh, and that was amazing because Lee was really like present, you know, was in the office. And at the time he was posting um, Shadow Boxer, which was the first movie that he had directed. And I was just really kind of, impressed by his um approach to directing a movie for the first time and you know both like I don't know how many weeks they posted that film but they were definitely working on it for a long time (laughs) but then also just getting like finishing funds because he was doing everything independently and was like you know by any means necessary kind of filmmaking and so screening the movie for all sorts of people to you know get money to finish it and, and take it to market and 
we just I remember like his assistant left or maybe was fired, probably fired. <laughs> and he didn't have an assistant it, over the summer. And I was will forever be grateful for him for this is he hired me. He paid me to intern for him, which was amazing. amazing. And then he hired me to be his assistant, like his full time assistant over the summer. So it was this great summer job. And, um, and, you know, he was like developing what would become precious and um was called i think push at the time yeah and developing all of this really cool stuff and it again it was this office of like very brilliant people and so it was it was one of the more kind of formative experiences mm. i'd had and then when i graduated from school i was really not interested at all in moving to los angeles i like think of myself i was raised in chicago but originally from new york and I'd always wanted to go back to New York and thought of myself as a person who's like way more East Coast than I am West Coast. <laughs> I had, again, you know, a lot of this is just like luck and, and fortune. And so I had the very good fortune of having a family friend who was a senior agent at um, at CAA. And my, my mom's best friend insisted that I speak with him before I determined what I wanted to do. And he was pretty straightforward that if you want to do production and development, you need to be in LA. And he kind of walked through the path of development executive, which is not intuitive. Like it's not at all what I thought it was, mainly because it starts by being an assistant. And I was like, why did I go to college and do all these internships to get an assistant job? Like I don't understand how getting yeah. coffee for people is going to help me learn anything. <laughs> And he was like, yeah, no, that's what you're going to do. So I moved to L.A., as my brother says, with a suitcase and a dream. Hmm. And I, I was, again, very lucky. I was kind of like, I always forget his last name, but the guy who did Body by Jake had been given an on-demand channel for exercising, like exclusively dedicated to exercising. So I worked as an assistant at Exercise TV. And cool. then <laughs> I worked as an assistant to these young kind of indie producers, but who both had... One of them was a former agent at WME, so she had, you know, like pretty significant connections. And she introduced me to, you know, a woman who became is today one of my closest friends and, you know, who I'm incredibly grateful for because I definitely would not have a career or know anything were not for her hiring me. And she and this producer, Andrew Lazar, hired me to be their assistant at their company. It was based at Warner Brothers. Um, Andrew had been producing for a really long time and was kind of in the like, second wave of his career. And we made, I think, four or five movies in like four years. It was just a ton of experience. And what that job did for me that was so helpful was I had never entertained making anything for a movie studio or a big network or broadcast I thought those people were kind of like the death of culture <laughs> and didn't make anything good and working inside of a company that was based at a studio in a big studio like Warner Brothers and that was also making movies for that company I was like oh Alana this is a business like this is not just people making art for art's sake and you know the vast majority of films content that is produced has to be commercially viable because mm -hmm. it's made for commercial purposes and it was just an education and it was just an education I didn't have because I was used to working with these like New York indie people yeah um or like student filmmakers and so it was a huge kind of mind 
opening experience. Um, and it, <laughs> at the end of it, I was like, okay, so if like 75% of films content is financed by one of these companies and those companies really hold the purse strings and the power in green lighting what is made or not, like, I want to go work for them. Like, I want to work for the people that have the ability to say yes or no. And so I switched sides to go work for, um, to go work for Fox and then Paramount as a studio executive, which again was a surprising experience because I really, really enjoyed the business part of yeah. the job. And I really enjoyed learning about taking again the creative out of it completely why one thing should be made versus the other what people define as commercial how people use the word commercial and what they mean by that what is a model that you run on you know the potential success or failures and then I became like really interested in at this time again I still only worked in film I became really interested in the model of theatrical film production and distribution and really kind of um not critical but uh but what's the right way to put it analytical Mm. about how that model works and how it works well and what are the kind of inherent pitfalls of it and then I was looking around and you know this like company Netflix all of a sudden was making original content and I was like what does that model look like and then all of a sudden you could have a subscription to video on demand which was wonderful kind of full circle evolution of my start at body by Jake's exercise (laughs) TV on demand channel and then you know, we at that point we had had like there had been a recession, and I was curious about like how that affected trends in movie going going audiences versus TV. And then at this point, like cable TV was becoming a thing. So there was all of this like dynamism in the business side of it, which was fascinating to me. And I really, really almost became more interested in that than I became in the creative. I, I would say I not even almost. I definitely became more interested in that. This is end a long story. <laughs> um, I really just shifted into like again. I I'd had this these amazing experiences working with like real filmmakers, and the last three movies that I worked on at Paramount were Fences, Annihilation, and A Quiet Place, all of which were really driven by the filmmaker, all of which were really phenomenal scripts, mm. and um all of which had so much creative vibrancy and thoughtfulness behind them. And that was deeply rewarding. But I was really just obsessed with the business side of things. Mm. I I went to go work for a startup that's kind of a startup, but Vimeo was trying to transition from a, um, from a, what's called the SaaS business, but basically just the service of being a video hosting platform uh, for mostly professional creatives into a supplier and a distributor of original content. And that just really fed the part of me that likes to look at the macro business of this. Um, And then I came out of that being like, okay, this is still very interesting to me and I've I feel like I've learned a lot and I've absorbed a lot but there's something here missing and I realized that I am a person who you know you ask why do you do this like that belief part is really interesting it's really important to me and the Mm. creative part is really interesting to me and so I started looking for things that felt like an intersection of the two like allowing me to still 
participate in you know the business side of of making content and how do you design a model or play with models in this kind of dynamic world that we're living in but also being able to pick and curate content that I believe in and that I believe should be put out into the world yeah and so thankfully that opportunity manifested in Michael B. Jordan who who wanted to um you know, t- turn what was his nascent production company into something that both made beautiful, elevated content, but also that, you know, existed between the traditional space of feature films and television, which is what he had always done as an actor, and the kind of future space of him being a younger person, me being a younger person, knowing that people consume content in different ways. And so we're now a year into, um, you know, building that version of the company, which he named Outlier Society. And we've made a bunch of stuff and we're making a bunch of stuff moving forward. And it's been good. Yeah. And his company is one of the first, at least that I have read about in the trades, uh, to really take on the inclusion writer which I think is brilliant and wonderful so talk a little bit about what that is and how that has you know shaped the culture there I love when we talk about the culture of our company because it's literally three people but we're, <laughs> we're like hey like start small. Uh, it starts small you got to start somewhere but but <laughs> you know again Michael is is just really smart and really kind of connected to what's happening in the world but also what's happening in the world of our business and he was very moved by Frances McDormand's speech at the Oscars where she mm-hmm. <laughs> name-checked the inclusion writer. And then at the same time, he has his agent on one side and me on another, both of whom are, are directly uh, involved with Stacey Smith's Annenberg Inclusion Initiative. Yep. We both sit on the advisory council. So when the inclusion writer kind of emerged in all of our consciousness, uh, which I don't think any of us were aware. Well, it, it didn't exist, you know, Stacey right. and, and two other women had kind of um, started to write it. So the year before last. Um, and once we became aware of it, uh, Michael was like, oh, well, this is completely aligned with my values and my beliefs. And it's a thing that I had been doing slash would be doing anyway. And now here's an incredible tool to, you know, to help um, facilitate that on a larger scale yeah. and also to help both the the studios and financiers and distributors that we're collaborating with but also the producers that we're collaborating with and the filmmakers that we're collaborating with understand that we it's important for us to strive for inclusion as much as possible for a host of reasons mainly because it's the right thing to do well because it's like duh because like duh yeah like, wouldn't you? we shouldn't need <laughs> we shouldn't need a writer to begin with you that's shouldn't, the but my know. my whole thing on the writer is this industry has existed for a hundred between 100 and 150 years right and it's had multiple iterations and it's gone through all these evolutions and the reality is it has never been able to get this right it's you know it's analogous to america like we still struggle with in various different forms you know whether it's Jim Crow, you know, segregation laws or mass incarceration or police brutality, like whatever it is, this is a country that still struggles with issues related to identity and race. And and we have not achieved true equality for all people. We're far from it. You know, we've made amazing strides and progress forward, but we still have a long way to go. And so 
if it were easily fixable, it would have been fixed, right? right? And so I agree. But you get this, having worked on the physical side, people, for the exact right reason, work with the same people over and over again. Mm-hmm. And that's because to create the environment you were describing earlier, where things run as smoothly as possible and people work well together and you feel like you know, you're know you building a, a, a crew in a way that should be successful. If you have a person you've worked with on three, four shows and they've been amazing, like you're gonna wanna call them again. Now, put that fact right. against the fact that the vast majority of people that have had inroads and opportunities in this industry have been white, straight, cis males. Mm-hmm. It's no shock <laughs> that we're now 100, 150 years into this industry and that the same types of people consistently work, you know, or at the top of their field and then get to hire other people. And then psychologically, you add to that that most people end up hiring, except for women, by the way, which is one of the ways in which we're dope, uh, <laughs> ends up hiring people that they feel like they can directly identify with. And psychologically, most people end up hiring. This is not just true to our industry. This is in life. End up hiring people that look like that or share similar backgrounds right so we do need it you know unfortunately Mm. um that was very well said by the way that was like preach (laughs) i think that there are people of all sorts of intentions good bad and in between Mm -hmm. i think frankly most people are lazy yeah and i think most people think of themselves particularly people in hollywood Mm. as good people that are progressive and that you know they well exactly uh but you know they're like oh my god like you know of course we think that women should direct course we think that people of color should have more opportunities of course we think we should tell all sorts of stories i think frankly most people think that way i think the the minority of people are probably sitting there saying fuck those people like we want right. to actively exclude them Th- those people definitely exist by the way i first sure. worked with some of them but but i don't think they're the majority but it's like when you're trying to put together a show and you've got to manage all of the things that have to happen so a show can go let alone go well it's I think for a lot of people viewed as an extra step Uh to have to think about hiring differently whatever that means and we're just gonna have to pause right there it's a very juicy conversation like I said I would not steer you wrong tune in next week and hear part two of our conversation if you like what you hear please subscribe rate comment like do all of the things as it really helps the show's visibility And drop me a line. I'd love to hear what you think. What are you vibing with? What are your takeaways so far from the show? Are there any questions you wish I would ask future guests? Let me know. I'm at Carolina Gropa on all the socials, and the show is at Life with Kaka. Thanks again for tuning in, and until next week, beijos.